The things we fight over can border on the silly. I came across a top 10 list of funny things married couples fight over based on social media postings. Here are a few on the list. Number one, the empty toilet paper roll. In every relationship, there's one partner who believes that the toilet paper magically reincarnates itself. The other's forever stuck with the task of replenishing supplies. No wonder it turns into one of the things couples fight about incessantly. Number two, snoring. It's only 5% cute and 299% annoying. Strike that. It's 0% cute and 500% annoying. In fact, snoring is one of the leading causes of sleep divorce among couples. If you're at the receiving end of the snoring, you know how real the temptation of smothering your partner with a pillow can be in those frustrating, sleepless moments. Sure enough, the next morning, crazy, stupid fights ensue. Number three, do I look fat? Honestly, there are no right answers to this question. You can't win this battle, ever. If your partner has asked you this, be prepared for a spell of bickering and arguments. This is undoubtedly one of the ten things we fight about with our significant others over and over again, and the outcome never changes. Number four, the room temperature. The couple whose body temperature, and hence the requirements for the right room temperature, matches does not exist, and hence the fights about what temperature to set the heat or air conditioner never ends. Number five, turning off the lights. The argument about who'd get out of the cozy covers to turn off the lights are surely one of the stupid things couples fight over. The struggle is real, people. We understand. But do you realize it's an argument you can put to rest forever by turning the lights off before getting into bed? Number six, directions. If one says east, the other must go west. That's just how couples operate, and of course, then fight about it. The blame-shifting over getting lost in the middle of nowhere never gets old or tiresome. We fight over silly things to serious things. We disagree on minor issues to major issues. We fight over inconsequential events to life-changing events. And Christians are no different. We're not immune from having disagreements. Perhaps with the ability to hide behind our computers and with the plethora of keyboard warriors out there coupled with social media, it seems to me that the fights and disagreements today are getting nastier and more personal with the demands of a zero-sum win-or-lose outcome. In some cases, these fights have spilled over into families, friendships, schools, workplaces, and even churches. Like with all people, Christians will have disagreements. These past few years, we've seen Christians all over the world disagree with each other over things like vaccines, mask mandates, politics, political candidates, the definition of marriage, transgender rights, reproductive health, and many other hot-button issues on top of the general things we already fight over, like family issues, work issues, educational issues, interpersonal issues, and relationship issues. Lifelong friendships have been cut, and families have been torn apart because of these disagreements. Those passions and strong feelings will justify one's thought that it is worth cutting off people who don't align with your views. But sadly, this dramatic measure isolates Christians from each other and from the world we are trying to reach out for Christ. 
In fact, the vicious fights and the zero-sum game we play as Christians give us a bad testimony in the eyes of the world as the unbelieving world wonders why Christians fight so much and so viciously when they talk about love all the time, specifically Christ's love. How should we handle disagreements, especially over differences of opinions? Let's look into the Scriptures for some biblical principles to help us serve as a better witness to the world. It's important first and foremost to distinguish a difference of opinions over convictions versus a difference of opinions over preferences. Convictions should be beliefs in biblical truths in which there can be no compromise. An example would be the belief that Jesus dealt with our sin problem by dying on the cross and that there is no salvation except through Him. On this truth, there can be no compromise because it comes from the author of truth, God Himself, through His Word, the Bible. Preferences, on the other hand, are beliefs in which there can be compromise because biblical truths either do not address the matter directly or it is what is known as gray areas where there are general guiding principles but nothing specific, such as like the subject of consuming alcohol. The Bible warns about the danger of alcohol and the sin of drunkenness but never forbids the consumption of it. It is a matter of personal preference. Other examples of this would be a preferred sports team you cheer for or a political candidate you are supporting at the local or national level. Both of these cases, a difference of conviction and a difference of preference, are found in the Bible. Let's take a quick look at two situations with the Apostle Paul so you can see clearly the difference. The first example is a difference of opinions over convictions and truth. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. I read verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. When the apostle Peter came to Antioch in Syria, he did something that the apostle Paul took issue with and confronted him. It wouldn't have been easy for Paul to do this because of Peter's stature in the early church, but it was necessary because there was a compromise of truth. Verses 12 to 13 tells us what happens. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. What Peter was doing was that when he came to Antioch, he would eat with the Christians who were Jewish and Gentiles alike. But when some Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem to visit Antioch, Peter withdrew himself from the Gentile Christians and no longer ate with them. Most likely the Jews from Jerusalem were probably Judaizers who believed that Gentiles needed to follow Jewish customs or undergo circumcision before they became Christians. We don't know if these people pressured Peter to pull away from the Gentile Christians in Antioch or Peter himself withdrew to avoid inflaming the rising conflict in the church. But Peter's actions caused other Jewish Christians like Barnabas to do the same. Simply put, Peter and the others who did this were hypocrites. They said one thing, that Gentile Christians, without following Jewish customs, were fully welcomed into the church with equal standing, but instead did another thing, 
breaking fellowship with them unless they conformed to their Jewishness. Verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Verse 14 tells us that Paul, seeing what Peter was doing publicly before them all, called him out and rebuked Peter. Paul criticized Peter for hypocrisy and not being consistent in how he treated all people based on the gospel he was preaching. Not only did Peter's action lead others like Barnabas to do the same, more importantly, Peter's action conflicted with the truth that God accepts both Jew and Gentile equally by faith alone. So this difference of opinions and subsequent public rebuke over truth convictions were justified regardless of the potential fallout between Peter and Paul because it was over biblical truth convictions. The second example is a difference in opinions over preferences. Turn to me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. The background of this chapter is that the Apostle Paul had been commissioned to go out with Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They had taken John Mark with them, and through the mighty work of the Holy Spirit, many had come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They made a great team. Paul, the intellectual powerhouse, eloquent and bold, with Barnabas, the encourager, one who knew the hearts of the people. Paul was the type A, and Barnabas the type B, and both complemented each other so well that they were effective in the ministry. I read now verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. The Bible tells us after some time, they wanted to check in on these converts in their first journey, so they planned for a second trip. But that's when a disagreement arose. Look at verses 37 to 38. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. The Bible tells us Barnabas wanted to take his younger cousin, John Mark, on this second journey. But Paul said, absolutely not. The reason Paul didn't want him to go was because John Mark had somehow abandoned them when the heat was turned up. And Paul's probable reasoning was that the gospel work was so important that they can't have anyone messing it up and bailing on them when the going got rough. Barnabas's view was let's give John Mark another chance. Let's show this young John Mark some grace because that's what we're preaching, the gospel of grace. Barnabas saw beyond his early failures and saw John Mark's potential abilities and spiritual gifts. But look at verse 39. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Two friends, two Christian friends, Two Christian leaders, good Christian friends who were leaders in the church, had a disagreement and were arguing. So intense was their argument that they had to split up. You see, my friends, it's natural for Christians to have disagreements. Being Christians doesn't mean we always agree on everything or are supposed to agree on everything. 
In the case of Paul and Barnabas, each probably thought they were right. Notice that the Bible doesn't tell us which one was right and which one was wrong. Both were probably right in their approach based on their personality, experience, and outlook. And both felt so strongly about their position, neither one was willing to back down. Both had good points. Paul, perhaps thinking that Barnabas was always too trusting and too encouraging, he needs to know when to pick better people. The gospel work is too important to leave to novices and people who will bail on them when the heat is turned up. Paul perhaps realized it was too soon for John Mark to venture out. Let him get some more experience before he comes with us again. Now, on the other hand, Barnabas was thinking that God gave you, Paul, another chance when you messed up. Why don't you extend the same grace to John Mark? In fact, we are preaching the gospel of grace. Would you show some grace to this young man? This young man was very gifted. He would go on to be the gospel writer of the book of Mark and be a great help to many, including Paul himself in the future. Barnabas saw in John Mark his great potential. But the results for this difference of preference, look at verses 39 to 41. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Words were said, arguments were made, and you have two best friends suddenly unable to work with each other. But they didn't storm off mad. They didn't lose their friendship. They simply agreed to disagree, and separation from ministry for them was the best, to be harmonious even with disagreements. Some Christians erroneously feel that any disagreement between believers is sinful, but there is no indication in the text that this difference of opinion was sinful because it was a difference over preference of whom to do ministry with. So both went their separate ways. The powerful missionary team of Paul and Barnabas was now two powerful missionary teams of Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark. I hope you're able to see the difference between a disagreement over truth convictions and a disagreement over preferences. Now, more specifically, if there's a disagreement over preferences and not on biblical truth convictions, there are a few biblical principles the Bible reminds us we are to keep in mind to avoid division and to maintain unity. These principles will help us remember to keep our emotions and tempers in check and to prevent us as Christians from fighting in such a way that we hurt one another and destroy our Christian testimonies in the world. Turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as we take a look at verses 1 to 13 to find these principles. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. This is Paul's letter to the Christians in Corinth dealing with some church issues. I read now verses 1 to 3. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. The context of this chapter is that the Christians in this church were divided because some Christians thought it was okay to eat meat offered to idols, while other Christians believed it was wrong. So the Apostle Paul wrote this chapter to address this issue and lay out some guiding principles to resolve this matter. For him, this is a gray area issue, not specifically affirmed as right or wrong. To address this issue, 
knowledge and facts would be needed. But Paul was clear that those who thought they knew it all actually didn't know many things. So they should keep their pride in check and be humble. Knowledge puffs up, Paul warns. Apparently, the more mature Christians who thought they knew how to deal with this issue had become prideful and offended the other less mature Christians by claiming they were right. Paul encouraged the Christians in Corinth to move away from an I-know-it-all attitude to cultivate a more loving, kind, and considerate attitude. As we will see in the subsequent verses, some of the less mature Christians didn't know that idols were worthless objects that held no special powers while the more mature Christians didn't realize that their less mature friends didn't know the truth and they tried to rub it in. You see, when we have differences of opinions and preferences, we need to remember, number one, we don't know everything, so be humble. We don't know everything, so be humble. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. The person we have a difference of opinion with doesn't know everything. And because we don't know everything, It would be arrogant of us to believe that we are right all of the time about everything. When we engage in discussion or debate over certain topics, we should remember that there is a possibility we may be wrong simply because we don't know everything. To accept the reality of us not knowing everything requires humility on our part and to let go of our pride and ego. It is important that for matters of preferences and opinions, it is best to keep an open mind and consider all possibilities. In fact, dealing with absolutes when you don't know everything is a dangerous game to play. Among couples, especially when fighting, it is recommended that you don't use words like always, never, every time, because it is most certainly not true. You never do this for me. You always do this. You do this every time. And the other party will most certainly remember a time when you did this or that as an exception to your absolutes. When supporting a candidate for political office, we don't know everything about them. We don't know how they think. We can't see into their hearts. We can't memorize all of their speeches and writings and everything they've ever posted on social media. But if you're so sure of their intentions and what they will do, you will be proven wrong time and time again simply because we don't know everything about someone. This is a reminder that we should be humble when we engage with someone who holds a different perspective or opinion on a certain subject matter and take the time to really listen and consider all options. This truth that we don't know everything is a reminder that we are not perfect. No one is. I think Paul recognizes about himself when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. And I think Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant, with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Here Paul tells Timothy just how bad he was, but by the grace of God, he was saved and forgiven. He was the worst of sinners, but he was a sinner saved by grace. The great apostle Paul was not perfect, a sinner saved by grace. 
And let's be reminded, you and I are sinners saved by grace as well. Therefore, when we argue about something that is just our preference and not clearly taught in the Bible, biblical truths, then we should show some humility. Because in reference to the upcoming election, we're all sinners saved by grace, voting on a candidate who is imperfect. There is no reason to argue in absolutes which would threaten our unity and could lead to division. I read now verses 4 to 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. In these three verses, Paul basically stated the fact that the many idols that the Greek and Romans were sacrificing to were nothing, worthless, non-existent beings, because there's only one true God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. Therefore, he comes to this logical conclusion in verses 7 and 8. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Here Paul is saying, because the idols are not gods, and in fact nothing, then offering food to idols does not change the food in any way. So it is okay to eat food offered to idols. However, not all Christians in Corinth knew or understood this truth. For some, who perhaps came from a deeply pagan background, their experience was such that in their conscience, they were still not able to get over the fact that the food had been offered to idols and so could not in all good conscience eat the food. And if their conscience bothered them, then they were not to eat this food, as Romans chapter 14, verse 23 reminds us about the importance of following our conscience. Notice that Paul doesn't make an assessment here who is better, the one who is at liberty to eat meat offered to idols or the one whose conscience doesn't allow him to eat meat offered to idols. Verse 8 is clear that eating or not eating doesn't make one better than the other. What is simply being pointed out is that everyone's experience is different. What Paul was trying to express is this, that number two, everyone's experience is different, so be gracious. Everyone's experience is different, so be gracious. You see, when we have differences of opinions and preferences, we have to remember that everyone's experience is different, so we have to be gracious. What we've gone through in life and what we experience may not be what other people have experienced, so it is highly unfair if we expect others to have the same preferences positions, and outlook that we have simply based on experience. For example, if someone were to ask me what I believe is one of the top five burger places in Manila, I would tell them to go get a burger from Sweet Ecstasy. Every time I've gotten a burger from there, it's been great. But what if one of my friends tries out Sweet Ecstasy based on my recommendation, but that day the cook had a bad day and he burned his burger, and it was a terrible experience for the person who tried it. What if then my friend comes back to me and tells me that they tried the burger I recommended and it was terrible? What if my reaction was to disown and disavow my friend because they just criticized one of my favorite burger places? What would you think of my reaction? What would you think of my action? 
Of course, you would say, that's ridiculous. Steve, you've overreacted. They just had a different experience, so it's okay. And that is the normal reaction we should have. But sadly today, our culture is so heated and toxic that deep divisions would start to develop simply because of different experiences. Since differences of perspectives and opinions come when one's experience and encounter with someone is different, let's all be a bit more gracious. For example, you may really dislike a person because of a bad encounter with that person, but you shouldn't expect everyone else to have the same anger towards that person because they haven't had that same experience you had in the same way, vice versa. Just because you've had a wonderful experience and friendship with someone doesn't mean other people should have the same love and warm feelings you have if they haven't had the same experience. You can share your stories to try to convince others of why you believe someone or something is better, but remember to show grace as each person's experience is different. You know, it saddens me that oftentimes those with more educational opportunities look down upon those who don't have the same opportunities and think them as dumb and uneducated for favoring a candidate that simply appeals to them because of their life experience. This sort of pride is similar to what Paul is warning here. Just because someone doesn't know something or have the experience to learn something, they shouldn't be looked down upon, but instead it should be an opportunity to lovingly teach and enlighten them. Because everyone's experience is different and we are to show grace to one another, let's remember not to malign, belittle, and disparage someone who simply disagrees with us. Sadly, instead of acknowledging we all have different experiences, which forms our preferences, some people will often call those who differ from them misguided, stupid, unreasonable, ignorant, brainwashed, or deceived. Among Christians, we may go as far as to say that the other person must not be a Christian because how can a Christian vote for that particular candidate? We must be careful not to malign and judge simply because we have a different perspective, preference, or opinion. For example, some of you may not know, but I really hate oatmeal. It doesn't matter if you put sugar, fruits, or even chocolate tablets in it. I refuse to eat it because of my experience as a child. My mom made us children eat it so often growing up, and I disliked it so much that I vowed then as a child that when I became an adult, I would never eat oatmeal by choice. So when my three children were young, my wife would make oatmeal for the family for breakfast. But my children would notice and comment, how come we all have to eat oatmeal, but daddy doesn't have to eat it? How come he gets to eat bacon and eggs? I would simply say, dad is sacrificing for you children to not eat oatmeal so that you can have more of it. We all know that oatmeal is healthy and contains lots of fiber, which is good for the body. And some of you may actually like oatmeal. But after hearing of my strong dislike for oatmeal, would you vilify me and malign me and say, that Pastor Stephen is so ungrateful that even blessed with oatmeal, he wouldn't eat it. Doesn't he know that there are starving people in Africa who would love a bowl of oatmeal? Or that Pastor Stephen, I can't believe he doesn't like healthy oatmeal which is good for his body. That means he's not a good steward of his body. And if he can't steward his own body, how can he steward and manage the church? Or others will say, that Pastor Stephen isn't a good example to his children. He's a big hypocrite, not leading his family by example. 
if he's going to make his kids eat oatmeal, but he will not, then he has no moral authority to tell them what to do. And if he's a big hypocrite at home, then he must be a hypocrite generally, so he is not suited to be pastor of our church. Would any of you say this of me when you found out that I don't like oatmeal? I hope not, because those are extreme assumptions you are making about me simply because we have a difference of opinion over my preference to eat oatmeal for breakfast because of my childhood experience. Now listen carefully. If you and I wouldn't do this over oatmeal, why do we disparage those who have a valid reason why they may prefer to choose one candidate over another? Since everyone's experience is different, show grace to one another. And in the process, we show the unbelieving world about how we express Christ's love to one another. Look with me now at verses 9 to 12. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. The Apostle Paul warns in verse 9 that someone who has no problems eating meat offered to idols and exercises that freedom openly could possibly affect the Christian walk of someone who is weak, meaning someone who has an issue with eating meat offered to idols. In verse 10, Paul gives an example where one of the weaker Christians who has a conscience problem may see a stronger Christian eating meat offered to idols and do the same thing, thus going against his conscience and sinning. And verses 11 to 12 says that the conscience of the weaker Christian is now affected, where he will begin to do things against his conscience and personal convictions and no longer be able to distinguish right and wrong. In this scenario of openly flaunting your freedoms, to do something knowing how another weaker Christian struggles with it would then be sin for you, the Bible says. This is a great reminder that when we have differences of opinions and preferences, we have to remember number three, it's not a competition, so be understanding. It's not a competition, so be understanding. Paul's point was, don't force the issue. It's not about you demanding that they follow you or them thinking like you. And in fact, he says, don't do things that you may have the freedom to do without considering how it may affect someone who differs from you. It's not about I'm right and you're wrong, so I'm going to do just what I want to do regardless of how you feel, even if I know you will feel bad and be hurt from it or perhaps to be stumbled by it. Sadly, whether among friends or family, or even between spouses, we cultivate an I'm right, you're wrong mentality. We also cultivate an attitude that says, I have to win. I have to win every argument all of the time. My friends, if you have this attitude, not only will you not have many friends, you will leave behind many broken relationships. You will lose out on the benefits of hearing other people's perspectives, which can be helpful and beneficial for you because friends and advisors will no longer want to share with you their opinions and perspectives, knowing that it may lead to another argument. I recently came across an article titled, Not Everything in Today's Society Needs to Be a Competition, written by Narvin Chai, a college student at the University of Central Florida. Let me share with you some of what he wrote, and mind you, this is a college student, but he gets it at a young age. 
I have a brother who's four years older, and he was much bigger than me when we were younger. Since both of us are athletes, we constantly competed with each other. We butted heads at home, having arguments ranging from backyard football to video games. Even when I beat him in something like a video game, he always had another way he could beat me, in a physical altercation. No matter how many times I tried, it felt like I could never beat him in a fight. So as the years went on, I challenged him less and less. I started to realize that this just wasn't a competition I really needed to win, especially because it was a really hard one. This may seem like a crazy story, but it taught me one important lesson. Being the quote-unquote winner doesn't always mean you won. Let me explain. If my brother and I disagreed, I could try to explain myself peacefully, or I could insult him, and eventually we would get into a fight. Even if I somehow beat him up, he would resent me and would fail to listen to my argument. Due to his physical advantage, I chose the peaceful route more often, and I noticed that we wouldn't fight so much. Any disagreement we had could be settled with a peaceful conversation. As much as I wanted to prove he was wrong and rub it in his face, that was just unnecessary drama. I learned that I would not be the loser in a competition if there never was a competition. I learned that I would not be the loser in a competition if there never was a competition. I could achieve my goal of proving I was right to my brother without even having to win an argument because there never was one. Through this ideology, I found it much easier to be persuasive in life and more effectively influence others. Narvin writes, I've been thinking about the concept of competition a lot because of the current events we are facing as a society. With the recent elections, events surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, and the social unrest we are seeing as a result of racial injustice, I've never seen such a polarized population. I blame social media for a lot of this as things seem to escalate at the speed of light nowadays. I've seen many people get into arguments just to feel a sense of victory. I'm not saying having arguments is necessarily bad. We are fortunate to have the right to disagree in America. What I'm saying is that we all should step back and think about better ways to achieve our goals as a society. Almost like the way athletes compete to prove who is the best. Many people argue their political beliefs just to feel like they are the best or the smartest or they could never be wrong. We need to work harder to understand each other and remember that not everything needs to be a competition. That last line resonated with me. Not everything needs to be a competition. In fact, this principle is repeated throughout the Scriptures, especially for Christians, all who are bought through the blood of Jesus Christ and therefore are brothers and sisters in Christ. There are no winners and losers if there is no competition at all. There are no winners and losers if there is no competition between Christians at all. And to conclude this section, let's see what Paul writes in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. As someone who loves steaks and all things meat, I can't believe what Paul just wrote. He wrote that he would be willing to give up eating meat if eating meat caused another Christian brother or sister to stumble in his or her Christian walk. I wonder if I could do the same. Here, Paul is stressing that brotherly love took priority over one's rights and being right. And what a great principle to remember when disagreeing over preferences and opinions. 
Remember number four, choose love over rights, so love one another. Choose love over rights, so love one another. This is a theme repeated throughout the Scriptures. You may have rights and opinions, but because of the example of Christ's love, we should willingly choose to show love to one another. In fact, even if we disagree with what the world believes or what they promote as an alternative lifestyle, we can still show them the love of Christ. This is what Jesus did when He was on earth. He loved the sinners of His generation, even those who vehemently disagreed with Him. So when He went to the cross, He died for all people because of His great love. He died for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders who were jealous of Him and tried to discredit and get rid of Him. He died for the Roman soldiers who tore His clothes and beat Him and mocked Him and and spit on Him. He died for the disciples and the followers who abandoned Him when He needed them the most. And He died for you and me when He chose love over His own rights as the Son of God to die in our place to save us. What a travesty for Christians who break fellowship with others simply because they disagree with them or vote for another person. This isn't showing the love of Christ, and this certainly won't allow you to effectively do the work of the Great Commission. As you close yourself off to the world, you and I are to reach for Christ. I have friends who I disagree with, but I'm still friends with them because I want to win them for Christ or to maintain the bonds of Christian unity. While we should never compromise on biblical truth convictions, we can love each other and disagree on our preferences and our personal opinions. Especially in the church, when we are supposedly unified in Christ, saved by the blood of the Lamb, what would our testimony to the world be if they see us breaking fellowship over the silliest of things? In fact, Jesus said that unity among Christians is one of the strongest evidence to the world that testifies of who Jesus is. And we see this in John 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3, Psalm 133, Philippians 2, Ephesians 4, and so on and so on. The appeal for unity is an important theme throughout the Scriptures. As Lieutenant writes, when we let the church become fractured over preferences, we have already let the enemy win. A house divided against itself cannot stand. The body of Christ needs to be unified, especially as we all live in an increasingly dangerous time. No politician, no election, no personal preference or opinion is worth you breaking up your family or friendship, Christian or otherwise. How we deal with disagreements of preferences and opinions in the love of Christ is a testimony to an unbelieving world. So when dealing with differences of preferences, remember, number one, we don't know everything, so be humble. Number two, everyone's experience is different, so be gracious. Number three, it's not a competition, so be understanding. Number four, choose love over rights, so love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, during times when things are heated and we disagree with someone, may the biblical principles we've learned today infuse our hearts and mind. Father, may we understand that many things we argue about is not worth breaking friendships and family over. In fact, the world is watching how we love one another, and you shed your blood on our behalf so that all of us could be under one family as brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to keep 
Christian unity, especially in times like this when things are so polarized. And I pray that through our testimony of unity, the world will come to know Jesus and see the love of Christ in us. Help us to be humble, Lord. Help us to be gracious, understanding, and help us, Lord, to love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.